0: The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Hey, do you all know who the most interesting man in the world is? Not Dan Jackson. Jason, who is it? Oh, you're saying you're the most interesting guy in the world. Okay. Andrew, do you know from the commercials? I know. What, what does he represent? Dos Eques. the most interesting man in the world. I don't know if you've seen the commercials, but uh, there are some pretty audacious claims made about the most interesting man in the world. I'll just read you a few. He lives vicariously through himself. That's how interesting he is. He once had an awkward moment just to see how it feels. The police often question him just because they find him interesting. Mosquitoes refuse to bite him purely out of respect. If he were to punch you in the face, you would have to fight off the urge to thank him. That's how interesting he is. And the final one, my wife's favorite, when he drives a new car off the lot, it increases in value. This is the most interesting man in the world. These are some pretty audacious claims. Jesus makes some pretty audacious claims as well. The difference is is that these are no joke. Uh, These are things that Jesus actually believes are true. And as we're walking through the book of John, in John 5, we start to see this opposition from the Jews as Jesus makes these audacious claims He claims to be the most interesting man in the world because he is the son of God. Not a son, but the son of God. That he does the work of God. That he's in the family business of being God. You may remember how the Jews responded to him. They said uh, that Jesus was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is true. This was the claims of Jesus. And then Jesus adds fuel to the fire by claiming that he is the giver of life, something only God can do, that he is the judge of the world, something only God can be. And so Jesus is on trial. Jesus has these claims out there and he brings forward witnesses to testify that these things are true. If you would, please open up your Bible to John Chapter 5, if you are in the Red Bible, is page 1309. I actually don't have the Children's Bible page, sorry. Oh, it is. Oh, Children's 1309. The Red is page 809. 890. I'll get one of these correct. So the Red Bible is page 890. Children's is page 1309. Now, this uh, topic of Jesus on trial is an extremely relevant topic today. Uh, Jesus is on trial wherever we go. One of the fruits of it is you see the statistics of children as they graduate high school. Uh, Somewhere between 60 and 80% of kids that are involved in the church growing up, when they graduate high school and they go out into the real world, either to college or some other place, 60 to 80% of those children are leaving the church. And there are many reasons for that. But one of the reasons is because wherever they go, Jesus is on trial, and skepticism is constantly bred into them. If you go to a college campus, the professors put Jesus on trial all the time trying to compare the historical Jesus with the biblical Jesus. In other words, the real Jesus, they claim, is much different than the one that we read of in the Bible. But it's not just on the college campus, it's in the workplace, it's wherever we go. Um, you, can, you can go uh, to your neighborhood. And Jesus is on trial. This stinking thing, what's going on with this? Um, You can go to the workplace. You can go uh, to the bar. You can go anywhere. And there's constant competition between the historical Jesus and the real Jesus. And Satan doesn't want you to hear this message. So, John, can I switch to this mic? Is that all right? By the way, I should have told you we can't plug this into uh, the first socket out there. Check. Check. Is it working now? Okay. I don't know why. We'll try it again. Sorry about that. All right. So Jesus is on trial. That's what we're studying. Um, And the two things that we want to look at today is this. Number one, well, the two things we want to remember. First off, this should be no surprise to us when we come to uh, circles of life and we see Jesus on trial because there have always been skeptics of Jesus. Even in today's text, we'll see it. You know, the people in Jesus' days were not buffoons. They were skeptical scholars and so when we see people that are skeptical of Jesus trying to refute the biblical Jesus and present to you a different historical Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us. The second thing that we should see is that we should be ready to give a defense. And that Jesus here today gives a sure defense for why he is everything that he claims to be. And as we read through this passage, one of the things that I want to want us to notice is that Not only is there opposition from the world to the historical, biblical Jesus, but if we were honest, we would confess even in our own hearts, there are times of doubt when we wonder, is Jesus really the only way to God? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Is Jesus really God himself? And so today Jesus presents a defense that cannot be refuted. So let's read together John 5, verse 31 through 47. John 5, verse 31. Jesus starts this way. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to this truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your text, it is thick. There is a lot here. Help us, God, with our finite minds to digest the infinite truths that we hear in this passage, God. Lord, we pray that you would help us to to internalize it, that it would not only change our minds, but it would change our hearts and change our lives and change our joy Grant us this grace in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start at the top of the passage to get a little context. Verse 31, Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Jesus is subjugating himself to the, uh, to the court system of the time. It's written back in Deuteronomy that a person cannot testify themselves and they must have two or three witnesses to testify On their behalf. And so Jesus brings up two or three witnesses. In verse 32, it continues and says, There is another who bears witness about me. This is not talking about John the Baptist, but God the Father. And he says, And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So Jesus is on trial for his claims of divinity. And in his Jewish court, he does not give a testimony. But he has a great lawyer. (laughs) It's not Perry Mason. It's not Johnny Cochran. It's the Heavenly Father who has been building his case, has been building his defense that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, has been building this defense for hundreds and thousands of years. And so we see the court case begin. It starts by calling the first witness John the Baptist, verse 33, says, You sent to John. If you remember, the Jews actually sent a delegation to John. John was growing in popularity. He had the right credentials. He was the son of a priest. They had wondered, is he the Christ? And so they sent out a delegation to go ask him this. It says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. And back in John 1, we read of this. In verse 20, John openly confesses, I am not the Christ. And then in verse 23 through 20, excuse me, 32 through 34, he writes this. You can follow along on the screen. It says, and John bore witness, witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. You know, John had a great opportunity to gather the nation's accolades to get power. And yet he used his power, his influence to proclaim, I am not the Christ. I am not the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who gives life. He is the light of the world. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Goes on, verse 34 in our passage, says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. Jesus has a higher authority that he answers to, that he gets validation from. But I say these things that you may be saved, that they might know that he is the Savior of the world. And then it says of John, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. John was not the light. John was a candle. John was a lamp that was set on fire by the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Again, back in John 1, verse 6, we read this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist, his entire ministry was to bear witness about Jesus, that Jesus is the light of the world. And he served as a candlestick to do that. You know, in our backyard, we have two tiki torches out in the garden and, you know, it amazes me that, 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 the, that the wicks, the, the rope never burns, right? It just sucks up the oil and the oil burns off. Maybe those ropes do eventually. But the rope isn't the light. The light is the fire. John was the rope. He was the candlestick. We are called to be candlesticks and lamps for Jesus, showing his light to the world, bearing witness as John the Baptist did. So the father gives his first witness, John the Baptist, who was a lamp that shone the light of Jesus, that testified, that witnessed to him. But more witnesses are needed. And so the father calls his second witness. And the second witness to testify to Jesus' divinity is the works of Jesus. Verse 36, read along with me. It says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. How do Jesus's works bear witness to his divinity? Well, you look at Jesus' miracles, his miracles were signs and vice versa. You may remember when John the Baptist was in prison and he was questioning. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus really the Messiah or should, is there another one coming? And we see this story in Matthew 11. It says, Now when, Jesus, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. Tell him about my works. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. Why did Jesus respond in this way? When they asked him if he was the Christ, why didn't he just say, yes, I am? Why did he say, look at these miracles that I did? Those were the things that the Messiah was to do. The miracles, the work of God to bring in the kingdom of God's redemption. And Jesus says, look and see, these are a testimony that I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. As we read on in John and as we look at his purpose statement once again, we see how important these signs are as a testimony. It says, now Jesus did many other signs, which can also be translated miracles, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus' miracles proved that he was God. Now, we can look at the Bible and we can say, you know, maybe the people were just wishful thinkers. Maybe Jesus was just a magician who did something secretly in a back room, and, or, or maybe there were just tales that were told and it rolled and the story got bigger and bigger and bigger. But Jesus did not do these r- miracles in a back room. He did them in public for many to see. Even if you think of the feeding of the 5,000, which was up to 15,000 people, Jesus did these miracles so that everyone could see. So no one could refute it. And so when the Gospels came out, when the Gospels were written several years later, there were still eyewitnesses, still people they could say, hey, you were there when Jesus was teaching, right? Did he really, did he really heal the paralytic? Did he really turn to five loaves and fishes to feed 5,000 people? Did Jesus really do that? And people would say, yes, I was there. I, did. I saw it. He did it. I mean, imagine this. Imagine if a person came into the building who, uh, who was in the service, who was in a wheelchair? All of us knew him from his birth. We all knew that he could never walk. He'd been paralyzed for 38 years, the story earlier in John. And we, we gathered around him and we prayed for him. And he gets up and he runs out of the auditorium. None of you would forget that, would you? I wouldn't forget it. Now imagine, you know, 30 years from now, I write an autobiography or someone writes a biography about me. It would be a very short pamphlet. But a part of that would be this story of this man that was healed. It was an amazing work of God. And imagine it was popular and everyone read this, including your neighbors. And they said, hey, you went to Jacob's well back then, didn't you? Did this really happen? And you could say, yes, I was there. I saw that it happened. Jesus' miracles were so testified to that no one could deny them. And they were proofs that Jesus really is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the one sent by God. So Jesus is on trial. And the Father gives two witnesses. First, John the Baptist. And then he gives the works of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. But then he saves his last witness, or his best witness for last. Just like any court case, you save the best for last, right? Like the glove doesn't fit, Right. Or, uh, I, you know, whatever it might be, you know, I think of a few good men, you know, why was all this stuff still in his closet, right? You leave the best evidence for last. And that's what Jesus does, and he spends quite a bit of time on it. The Father's third witness, the final witness, are the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament. And what's unique about this part of Jesus' defense is that he actually starts to turn the tables. No longer is he... De- defending his divinity only, which he still continues to do. But he also starts to use the scriptures to bring accusations against the Jews that are persecuting him. Let's read in verse 37. It says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. Unlike Jesus, they haven't heard or seen God. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, in these verses and the verses to come, there are a lot of things we find out about the word of God. Um, if you look in your bulletin, you'll see I think I have five subpoints, and so we're going to try to walk through those. But these, this is maybe one of the most important passages in understanding Jesus's view of the Old Testament. The first thing we see is Scripture's author. You know, the Old Testament was written by men like Moses, like um, like Solomon, like David, like all of the prophets. Okay, and it reflected their personalities. But Jesus here says that these are the Scriptures. These are the Word of God. They are breathed out by God. The author, the ultimate author of these is God himself. You know, there are two ways to look at the Bible. You can look at the Bible as a human book written by men in their pursuit of God. A human book written by men in their pursuit of God. And if that is the case, then it could be full of errors. It could be wrong. It could be inconsistent. Or we could see it as Jesus sees it a divine book written by God through men in his pursuit of humanity. And so we see the author of the Old Testament, these men, yes, but by God. Secondly, what we see about the scriptures is that it demands things from us. The first thing we see it demands is that we search the scriptures. Jesus commends the Jews on this, that they have searched the scriptures. This is a good thing. This is a right thing. They had poured over it. They had memorized it. They had written it out. They knew the scriptures, especially the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They had memorized it. And this was such a good thing. You know, this is instructive to us when we look at the Bible, that this is something that should be searched for, that should be searched in. That we don't just put it on the shelf for six days and pull it out on Sundays, right? It's not like it's not like a, 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 a you know one of those fire extinguishers where, like, in case of emergency, break glass, pull out and read, right? This is something that is to be searched daily because it is of great value. When I was uh, when I was in college, I helped out with a high school ministry. And we took these kids on this weekend retreat. And one of the things we did is we had a room that was probably, oh, I don't know, half the size of this auditorium. And we filled it up about knee high with crumpled up newspaper. And they had, they had a snowball fight is what we called it. And so they were having fun. There was like an hour they were throwing it, shoving it in each other's faces. And by the time it was done, the, the paper kind of fluffed up and it was about waist high, the entire room. And as the students were leaving, one of the girls, one of the high school girls says, oh, no. I'm like, oh, what? She's like, I lost something. And, you know, if it was, if it was a, a quarter or a nickel or even like a $20 bill, we would have said, there's no way we're searching for this thing. She had lost a diamond out of a necklace, a diamond that her mom, who had passed away, had given to her. It was of tremendous value. And so what did we do? We searched every single newspaper until we found it. One by one, picking it up, shaking it out, shoving it in the bag. After about four hours of searching, we finally found the diamond. It was amazing. And we rejoiced. Why? Because it was of great value. We're called to search the scriptures because they are of great value. If you know any part of church history, especially in the 1500s, 1600s, There are men and women who have died that we could have access to the word of God. Why? Because it is of such great value. It says itself, David says that the scriptures are more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. They're of great value and we are called to search them. But searching them is not enough. Scripture demands more. Verse 38. Jesus says, and you do not have the word abiding in you. Evidently, one of the things that we should do is not only search the scriptures, but let the scriptures search us. That they're to abide in our hearts. It is not just to remain in the brain, but it's to make that 12-inch journey down to our hearts and transform our lives. That we should memorize it, meditate on it, enjoy it. That we should wrestle with it. How do you know if the word of God abides in you? Is it changing you? Is it, is it moving you? Is it disrupting you? Is it giving you joy? We're called to let the word of God abide in us. And so we're called to search the scriptures and let the scriptures abide in us. Third thing we find out about the scriptures is its purpose. What is the purpose of the Old Testament? I know you probably think that as you're reading through Leviticus. What is the purpose of this, right? Jesus tells us, verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life." So the Jews created this into a works righteousness. I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to memorize it, and then God's going to be happy with me. I'm going to get brownie points in heaven, right? You hear that today? We just check the box. We, we do our quiet time, we do our devotional, and then we move on and now God is happy with us. But Jesus is insulted by this. He continues, he says, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures in and of themselves, reading the scriptures, do not have eternal life, but they point to the one who does. And you know what? It's not just the prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. You know, he will die on a tree. Jesus fulfills over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. But it's not just those. It is all of the scriptures that prophesy about Jesus, all of the scriptures that point to Jesus. Do you remember the story in Luke 24? After Jesus' resurrection, two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus, and, and Jesus comes up alongside them incognito. They don't know that it's him, and he says, What are you guys talking about? And they say, Haven't you heard? And he said, No, tell me. And so they said, This man Jesus, who we thought was the hope of Israel, he died. And now some women came today and said that his tomb was empty and that he was raised from the dead. But we don't believe them because that's just unbelievable. And then Jesus comes back at them with this rebuke. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then Jesus preached what would have been one of the most amazing sermons ever. He said, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of the scriptures point to Jesus. All of the scriptures are about Jesus. The case for Christ is the Old Testament. And it all pointed to him. We also learn a scripture's barrier. What keeps people from believing what is written there, from abiding in it. Verse 41. I do not receive glory, uh, meaning honor or praise from people. He receives it from God. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, meaning false messiahs, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory From one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God. The barrier to having the Word of God abide in us is glory greed, seeking glory from men, seeking their adoration, seeking their respect above God's. And Jesus says that you should seek the glory that comes from the only God. You know, it's so interesting because. Um, it doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, you know what? Seek to glorify God. You know, that's something that we'd say a lot. Maybe you've heard, was the chief end of man to, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, forever. Here it says that you should seek the glory that comes from God. What does that mean? Well, later in John, in verse 17, in chapter 17, before Jesus is about to go to the cross, It says Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And then later in the passage, it says the glory, Jesus says to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Let's be honest. We all seek the glory of men. We struggle with wanting to please people more than God. We struggle with having an audience of one, which is God himself. We want them to like everything that we do. And we can compromise our relationship with God because of it. But Jesus had only one audience, to glorify the Father. And his last act of glory was to obey God, even to the cross, to trade his earthly glory, his earthly kingdom for a heavenly one to endure the ridicule and persecution of men who nailed him to the cross, who killed him, that we could have glory with God, that as Jesus raises up from the dead, those who trust in him will be raised up with him, united with him. And as Jesus receives glory before the Father, because we are united to him, we receive glory too. And so Jesus says, seek that glory. Finally, the scriptures Accusations, the final thing. Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writing, how will you believe my words? Moses was the one they looked to. Moses was the one that they built their hope on, following Moses' laws. But they completely missed Moses' message because Moses wrote about Jesus. Do, may, have you, any of you had a dog or a little kid and you're trying to point something out to them, right? And you're like, hey, puppy, go get the ball. Go get the ball. And unless they're really well trained, all they do is they look at your finger, right? They don't look at what you're pointing to. They just look to the pointer, this is what the Jews were doing. They were looking at Moses and they were saying, look how, look how long Moses' fingernails is. All of our fingernails need to be this length, right? Look, Moses is pointing with the index finger. Let's, let's all point with our index finger. And so they, were so they were so tuned in to the sign, to the pointer, that they never looked to the thing that it pointed to. They never looked to Jesus. And because of that, they, were, they stood condemned. And so Scripture accuses us if we do not look to Christ, the one who all the Scriptures are written about. So that is the Father's defense. Jesus claims divinity. The Father builds a defense against, builds a defense to support Jesus' divinity. He builds it through John the Baptist, through the witness of John the Baptist, through the witness of the works of Jesus, through the witness of the Scriptures. So the question is, what is your verdict? Is Jesus the Son of God? Is he the Christ? If so, how does that change your life? The book of Esther is one of my son's favorite books because it is a great drama. If you've never read the book of Dr- Esther, it's, it's amazing. It's a great, great story. In there, there is a guy named Mordecai. He's a Jew, and uh, there's also a bad guy named Haman. And Haman has authority over Mordecai. And Haman gets this edict passed in which will kill all the Jews, including Mordecai. And so so Haman has this authority over Mordecai. And I'm not going to go through all the details, but by the end of the book, the roles are reversed. And Mordecai becomes the judge of Haman. And Haman, the evil guy, is hung from the gallows. What we see in today's passage is that although Humanity may put Jesus on trial now. The roles will be switched. And there will be a day when Jesus will put humanity on trial. A day when we will be called to account for when Jesus asks, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? John the, witness, John the Baptist witnessed to it. Jesus' miracles witnessed to it. The whole Old Testament Witness to it that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. How you answer the question, Who is Jesus? This will not determine the verdict about Jesus, but the verdict about you. Let's pray. Lord, we come, and this is there's a lot in this passage, God, to digest of all the ways that you have proven the divinity of your son, the goodness of your son, the glory of your son. You tell us, Lord, that he is the giver of life and we trust him, Lord, to give us the life that's everlasting. Lord, help us to commune with you by getting in your word, by searching it, by letting it abide in our hearts, by wrestling with it, by, tr- by being transformed by it, God. Thank you for sending Jesus. We pray that he would be honored in our hearts, that he would be glorified in our hearts, and that we would have great joy with him for all eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.